Today we'll be discussing comedian Ricky Gervais, and we'll be discussing depression. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing Ricky Gervais, including our thoughts on his new stand-up special, Armageddon. Then in our second half, we will talk about depression. Now, how are these two linked, you might ask? Ali, tell our listeners how we intricately and perhaps, you know, inappropriately link these two topics. Well, a lot of people listen to Ricky Gervais' comedy and then fall into a deep depression. Oh. No, gosh. I'm just joking. I believe what you're getting at is that one of the greatest pieces of work in his repertoire is a show called Afterlife, I believe. And Afterlife deals with a man who's going through quite a serious depression. It's an interesting show that we'll dive into a little bit more as we, we go through this. Let's get started talking about comedian Ricky Gervais. I think we both really, really love some of his work. Some of his work a bit more controversial, and I want to get into that in our conversation today. But why don't we start off with a bit of background about Ricky Gervais, and then we can kind of segue into some of his shows, Afterlife, and of course The Office, and then maybe some of his more recent stuff. So here's a bit of trivia. I don't know if you knew this, Ali, but Ricky Gervais's father is actually Canadian. He's Franco-Ontarian. So Ontario is, many people know, is a province in Canada. And so we have a Francophone or French population. And so his father was actually a French-Canadian in Iroquois descent. So he is part First Nations Aboriginal from Canada on his dad's side. Then he grew up kind of outside of London, Ontario, which is a smaller city in Ontario, and then emigrated to the UK when he was on foreign duty in the Second World War and then decided to stay. Can you imagine how much less of a bite Ricky Gervais would have had to him if his father just stayed in Canada? Yeah, yeah. He was raised on a farm in Payne Court, Ontario, a place that I'm going to bet most of Canada has not heard of. Who knows? Who knows if he even would have gotten to comedy? But if he had, uh, nobody would have been listening to his voice. But he's an ethnic minority, right? I mean, he's never dived into that. I've, yeah, I've never heard him talk about it. But So then if we kind of fast forward for Ricky Gervais, after high school, he took a gap year and he worked at a, as a gardener at the University of Reading. And then he went to University College London, you know, quite a famous college in England, not Ontario. And he was supposed to study biology, but then he changed to philosophy after two weeks. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. And, of course, during that time there, he met Jane Fallon. And Jane, he talks about in many of his interviews and his comedy specials. This has been his partner since, again, I think since the early 80s they've been together. Early 80s, yeah. And she is a, quite a renowned author, and some of her works have been made into plays. And I think one of those being made into a musical in Sweden with the music of Roxette, like making the music for it. So it, she's quite accomplished. I haven't really seen a lot of interviews with her, and I think he, they keep their relationship relatively private. And then, Ali, the 
interesting thing is, and people have brought this up sometimes with criticism towards Ricky Gervais, but I don't really think you should criticize people for a career change. I mean, he was in school for philosophy. Then he kind of wanted to get involved with the music industry. He managed back in the 80s, Suede, who is now a quite well-known band from the UK, but back in the early 80s when he managed them, they weren't really uh, very well-known. But he also attempted a career as a pop star in the early 80s. He was a singer in a new wave band called Siona Dancing. I'm going to link to some of these videos with Siona Dancing so people can watch what we're talking about. And I'm going to play it for you right now, Ali. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the videos. It's very interesting. I mean, it's hard to tell. Is it because it's new wave and it was not cool to like move around too much or be too happy about life? Or is it because Ricky Gervais hadn't really found his personality? Now, a lot of us learned that Ricky Gervais had any musical background on The Office when we heard him sing what, Asif? Do you remember? Free uh, Love Freeway. Free Love for the Freeway, yes. Yeah. Yes. So a lot of us, that's when, because we were not familiar with Ricky Gervais outside of England, we become familiar because of the UK office. And then all of a sudden it's like, hold on a second. This guy has an actual voice. Like, I know it's ridiculous what he's singing, but this guy has some musical talent. And then it became a thing with, did you know, did you know he actually used to be in a band? And then the discoveries, although this is like pre-good internet. So we had to work hard to find all this information. But yeah, he's actually a talented musician. I'm not sure if this new wave phase reflects that personally, but I'm not a fan of new wave musicals. It's worth checking out if you're interested. Then he kind of pivoted into comedy. He was on a bunch of pilots as part of Channel 4 in the UK. He did a one-off show called Golden Years, which was focused on a David Bowie-obsessed character called Clive Meadows. Again, I'll try and link to that. You guys can check it out. It's quite ridiculous because this guy, he acts completely normally, like a kind of a normal Ricky Gervais character, except he's dressed like the Ziggy Stardust David Bowie and just walking around the office. And anyway, it's it's quite funny. And then he was on the 11 o'clock show, which was a comedy program. And so this was kind of where things were going. And then he, of course, met and worked with Stephen Merchant and then... Eventually, they ended up pitching The Office to BBC. So The Office, we talked about this on our favorite comedies of the 2000s towards the end of 2023, and we basically ranked it at the very top, our favorite comedies of the 2000s. It's such an incredible piece of work. Ali, what are your thoughts on the UK office? Yeah, I mean, for us, I think it was pioneering, groundbreaking, fearless television. We hadn't really seen, you know, I think in England, they had seen Ali G. They had seen the sort of cringy comedy and cringe characters. It's kind of a bigger genre in, in England. It was much more appealing if you have a, I think if you have an elevated sense of humor, you can see cringe from, from a few different perspectives. And I feel like England being the nation that's dripping with, you know, sarcasm and, and it leans towards a, you know, good satire. They were into it. So when it came to us, it was just this revelation. And 
this character, I mean, the character he played, it's hard to erase everything we've seen since The Office, right? This was 2002, 2003. And how do you erase 20 years of all the cringy and, mm-hmm. and, you know, committed actors who go away? But David Brandt, this character was something else entirely. And if you can go back and remember, I think you almost have to admit to yourself that it's one of the greatest things to ever, ever come on television. Yep, I agree. And, if, you know, when it first came out, they, of course, in the UK do series. So the first six episode series came out in the summer of 2001 and basically there wasn't really any attention and then as time passed you know what does time do <laughs> you know i like the you know and then it was just the most common pedestrian usage of the term we're keeping that in as time <laughs> passed word of mouth and you know reruns and then dvds help spread the word i think that's how it i just kept hearing more and more people talking about it and eventually you just have to check it out right whether it's you know you telling me or our friend q telling us whatever it may be yeah this was the water cooler days yes, right exactly this was the water yeah. cooler days so you're like I, i'm no longer able to communicate with people around the water cooler metaphorical water cooler usually it's just your friends so you have to get into it yeah you had to figure it out and find a way to watch it And after the second series came on, Gervais was named the most powerful person in TV comedy by the Radio Times. Oh, and we all listened to what the Radio (laughs) Times, I mean, that's a huge, not to dismiss. In 2004, The Office won the Golden Globe for Best TV Series, Musical, or Comedy, and he won Best Actor, Television Series, Musical, or Comedy. And Gervais says that's kind of when he's like, this is my gateway to America. And of course, Mm -hmm. we know what happened after that. Yeah, he's also his gateway into the Golden Globes. Nominated a number of times, winning a couple of times, hosting. We'll get back to that in a second. Yes, exactly. Because the Golden Globes love Ricky Gervais. That is a statement, right? Just like Germans love David Hasselhoff, as Norman Donald used to say. The Golden Globes love Ricky Gervais. So now we can talk about two different things. First of all, all the spinoffs of The Office. It was made in a local version in Sweden, France, Germany, Quebec, Brazil, Chile, the Czech Republic, Finland, India, Israel, Poland, and of course, the United States, where as we talked about previously, it's a huge phenomenon. And now that it's in reruns on Netflix, basically every teenager I know loves The Office. It's their favorite show. And most of them watch it in Polish. At least had a role today. Yeah, I mean, and and, you know, that was, I don't know if you remember, we've talked about this, Asif, but there were these growing pains for the U.S. office where Steve Carell was tasked with this, you know, I would say it's like a Herculean task. You have to kind of, and most people probably didn't, let's be honest, most American viewers didn't know the U.K. office, so I guess it wasn't that. But for those of us who knew... We're like, this is Steve Carell doing Ricky Gervais, doing David Brent. What is this? We've already seen this. We don't need another person to do this. This is like kind of offensive. And so it's like a great TV journey, in my opinion, because, and, and, and also it speaks to Steve Carell because many of us would have been like, loser, let's get rid of this guy. But maybe we weren't, we were, this was pre-cancel mode, maybe. We, we were more forgiving back then. But I think it has to do with Steve Carell too. We, we waited, we waited and, and Steve Carell came into his own and that show really- After the first six episodes, that show becomes amazing. They just need to find their feet and you need to give yeah. shows enough time to do this. That's the yeah. problem. And so as soon as he didn't have slicked back hair anymore, remember he had the slicked back hair, gelled hair yeah. the first season. After that, it took off great show you're blaming the gel 
for that's any right. shortcomings. Exactly. Of exactly. Got it. Then if we think about, so that's one aspect. The other aspect can then be his productions in the UK. So then the next big series he made was Extras. Again, created by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. And they did 12 episodes total. Ricky Gervais starred as Andy Millman, who is a background artist in quotation marks, but I guess, mm. is that the term we use? <laughs> background actor, artist is great, but that's exactly what Andy Millman might do. He's an extra, or some, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's an extra. And it's him and, and his friend, and, and they're kind of like trials and tribulations. But the real reason he really wanted to do this, and again, we'll talk about this later with the Golden Globes, is because it allows the famous guest stars on it, and there is a slew of guest stars. I mean, if you haven't seen this thing, it's amazing. So we have Daniel Radcliffe, Patrick Stewart, Kate Winslet. I mean, these guys totally make fun of themselves. It is hilarious. It's a really fun show, and I highly recommend if you haven't seen Extras to, to check it out. 100%. I remember when it wasn't on my top 10, and then you, I think you mentioned it on yours, and I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. How could I forget about the extra? So great. And this is also in the spirit of the Larry Sanders show, one of my top shows of all time, that these actors would come on and really have a lot of fun creating an alternate, ridiculous, foolish version of themselves. And I, I really enjoy seeing that. But also, you know, having done a little bit of acting at the time that I watched extras, I just love this idea because we were always, you know, fascinated by extras and their relationships and what can happen there. And what if you had a whole other show about that? And then this show already existed. We did not know that when we were talking about that. So then he did a couple other things. I don't think you've watched this. It's Life's Too Short. Again, Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant did it. And it stars Warwick Davis. So if you don't know who Warwick Davis is, he's a little person and he plays himself in the, in the show. So he's kind of making himself the butt of the jokes in it. But Warwick Davis has been in many things. He was, you know, in the Ewoks. He was, I think, Wicket, the Ewok in Return of the Jedi. So, And he's in Willow. He's like the main character in Willow, if you guys haven't seen Willow, and in the rebooted TV series. So he, he is totally making fun of himself. He's a self-centered, kind of obnoxious, you know, person who's just still trying to make it in acting. So he's kind of making fun of his own persona. But it, it was pretty fun. I watched that. It, it's good. It's not quite as good as Extras or The Office, but it's worth checking out. When they did this Willow, TV series reboot on Disney Plus, I think last year or the year before. They did a couple previews for the show, and Warwick Davis basically played this jerk character of himself, like interviewing mm -hmm. the cast. It's quite funny if you if you haven't seen that. I couldn't believe he did just brought back that kind of jerk Warwick Davis character. So that was that was really good. He also made the show called Derek, which I never watched. I didn't get very no good Derek also nominated for uh or maybe it won, any, or it was nominated for a Golden Globe, too. Yeah, those who like it, like it a lot. I somehow, I don't know. I just, if I'm being honest, the poster was just not appealing to me. Yeah, it didn't seem like something I was interested in either. So then, that, again, you and I don't have a lot of exposure to. But then, a couple of years ago, he made Afterlife. And you turned me on to this. You basically said, you have to watch this show. And it took me a while to get into it. I think my wife and I watched it during the pandemic, caught up on it. Maybe not the best time to watch something like this, but yes. Yes, because the plot of this is it takes place in the fictional town of Tambury in the UK, and it follows a, the small town newspaper writer, Tony, whose life is turned upside down when his wife dies from breast cancer. And he is clearly depressed, and he contemplates suicide, but then decides instead 
to punish the world for his wife's death by saying and doing whatever he wants, regardless of how it makes people feel. He considers this, in the first few episodes of the series, his superpower. He just says whatever he wants, does whatever he wants. He doesn't care. And then, well, you have to see what happens over the series over time. And I think, Asif, you sort of hinted at something here where you were saying that Life's Too Short was not as good as The Office or Extras. It's a fool's errand to try to make anything as good as The Office. Extras got close, but even that, I mean, that's that's on the backs of other uh, actors almost more than it is uh, Ricky and Stephen Merchant, not to take anything away from those two. So I think it's, it was very, very clever, maybe necessary even, that... Ricky Gervais turned to something that's a little more dramatic and sad and, and grounded. And he does a good job. He's a pretty damn good actor. Mm-hmm, and, and Afterlife mm-hmm. proved that. Yeah, I highly recommend people watch this if they have. And in, even if you don't like Ricky Gervais, because that's almost the point, right? He is very unlikable, at least in the that's beginning the of the series. the other thing. Why are we still watching this when we hate the lead character? I usually yeah. don't watch, but yeah, he exactly. still had something redeeming. And I think it's, you know, we get to see a lot of his relationship with his wife who had passed away via, you know, technology, via videos he has saved of her. And I think that was also genius. I think that's what kept me in there. Otherwise, I'm well known in my house (laughs) with my wife, basically. I'm well known with one person to leave a movie. Within half an hour, I'm like, nope, don't like this character. Don't want to go on a journey with them. They're repulsive. And my wife follows me like, what? You already invested half an hour into this. I'm like, yep, I value my time too much to go any further. And sometimes it's great actors, actors who I really like, but just that role, I'm like, I don't like this person. I'm not going on this journey. So definitely check it out. It's the only series he's ever done where he did three seasons of it. He thought he had enough. Now, to criticize it slightly, I think Afterlife, the third series, the first episode is necessary and the last episode is necessary. The middle, I think we didn't really need all that stuff. I think it maybe ran a bit too long, but it could have just been like a one-hour special at the end. And he's been known to do Christmas specials, etc., right, in the past? Sure, yeah. And in fact, speaking of specials he's done... One thing that was just like, you know, because he really does leave you wanting more. I mean, I think that's a a good way to describe Ricky Gervais' approach. And everybody was like, will there be more office? Will there be anything? Because there's the office Christmas special. And there is something, as we, you know, link back to his musical life. It was called David Brent Life on the Road. Did you ever see that film? I think I might have. Tell me about it. So on YouTube, you can go and see like clips of it which describes everything you need to do. But it's basically this film, it's 12 years after the BBC documentary, actually a mockumentary, we all know The Office, and we find that David Brent is now a traveling salesman, but he has not given up on his his, his dream of rock stardom, and he's got this band called Foregone Conclusion, and he says it so seriously every time he says Foregone Conclusion, and it's just a bunch of... Guys who are just trying to cash in on, you know, they don't have the passion he does. They're just like, oh, let's go make some money. And he cashes in his pension and takes leave from his work to turn his uh, dream into a reality. So if you hadn't had enough of The Office and you were like, oh, we got teased with Free Love Freeway. We need more. That That's to be watched, I think. I, I mean, it's, as you say, it just can't meet the expectations of the office so it is something a little bit different but everything's if you're an office fan i think you'll enjoy it so 
We can then talk about this other aspect of Ricky Gervais, which is his, I mean, we could talk about many things. He's a big activist, especially when it comes to animal rights. But let's talk about his stand-up comedy, because I'm very curious what your thoughts about this are. He has done a couple of comedy specials, and we'll get to his most recent one in a second. But he hosted the Golden Globes several times over the past few years. Ali, I know you and I have both watched his Golden Globe performances. What did you think about his hosting duties for the Golden Globes when he did those? I would recommend, now you gotta be a fan. You gotta be a fan, otherwise you'd be like, this man is an absolute monster of a human being. But if you are a fan in any way and you understand what Ricky Gervais is all about, watch the 2020 Golden Globes monologue. It is one of the greatest things, one of the greatest monologues of all time. It is relentless. It is an assault of comedy. It is, at one time he breaks character because he's got, it's a Dame Judi Dench joke about cats. He breaks, he goes, I can't do this joke. And he starts laughing and he's like, no. And then he does it anyway. And then you remember that he's a human being uh, playing a role. But otherwise, it is just relentless, merciless comedy from start to finish. One of the greatest things ever. And when I watched it, you know, and I watched it again, just as we were preparing for this, part of my mind, I don't know if the world remembers Joe Coy. You remember Joe Coy from a couple of weeks ago? That's old news. Who hosted the Golden Globes, comedian, Filipino comedian, a Filipino-American yeah. comedian. And uh, El Bamo? El Bamo. It didn't go well. Here's the thing. It didn't go well because of you know, choices that Joe Coy himself made in large part. I know a lot of people are like, it's a tough room and these people don't want to laugh. You watch the 2020 Ricky Gervais thing and you'll see how much people want to laugh. In fact, part of me wondered, hey, is this what Joe Coy watched? And he was like, I got it. I know what to do. You can't do it. Ricky Gervais does. You can't do it at the worst of times, but certainly that is the best of times in the sense that he had done it for five years and he came in saying, this is my last time. This is my last time. I'm never doing this again. I don't know what the problem is, why you keep calling me back. I don't like this job. I don't like you people. All right. So people loved it. They were just lapping it up. Joe Coy never even introduced himself. I think Joe Coy forgot, you know, because he, he sells out arenas. He sells out massive arenas. 20,000 plus people come to his shows. So he kind of maybe lives in a bit of a bubble where he's like, people know me. People know me. I'm selling out arenas. My wife didn't know him. I was working on Canada Reads launch that week. Pretty much everybody in Canada Reads world did not know him. Like people who tune into the Golden Globes did not necessarily know Joe Coy. And let me tell you, people in that audience did not know Joe Coy. Okay? Bradley Cooper, although he gave him a nice laugh, probably didn't know Joe Coy. Bradley Cooper immerses himself in his work. He's got other stuff going on. He will not know even some of the biggest stand-up comedians. I think what Ricky Gervais did was he basically did scorched earth with making fun of yes. celebrities. And that's, I think, the way you should do the Golden Globes. But yeah, but you have to be known. You have to be like, right. I don't know if Ricky could have done that his first year. You have to come out. You shared this with me, Asif, that week. Mike Lawrence is a comedian who was like, look, Joe Coy came out and he started in the middle of his set. In other words, where's the introduction? Where is the, hey, I'm Joe Coy, get used to my voice, get used to my perspective, learn who I am. I'm going to tell you all those things. Then I'm going to make fun of myself, and then I'll be allowed to make fun of others. 
Good point. Because everybody else who's hosted, let's say, even Gerard Carmichael, I think, did it last year. He is better known than Joe Cohen. It's not even about better known You're right, as much yeah. as it's like introduce yourself. Yeah, to, totally, get totally. used to who you are. And I mean, I love Ricky Gervais hosting the Golden Globes. I think he's so funny. And of course, he's punching up in this. And, and we'll get to the idea of punching up and punching down in a second. And I think some of those celebrities just kind of held their head in their hands. They couldn't believe what he was saying. Some of them laughed. Some of them were upset. But who cares? And I don't think Ricky Gervais cared, to be honest with you. He's like, you're paying me money. I don't care. I'm just going to say this. So and like he said, they kept inviting him back. He's like, I don't know why you keep inviting me back. But I do think that Ricky Gervais somehow, after the success of The Office and Extras and everything we talked about, kind of fancied himself a stand-up comedian. And he released some specials, mainly on Netflix. And then he did something that I thought was very interesting. In 2011, he had this special I believe on HBO, which starred himself. And the description is fellow stand up comedians, Louis C.K., Chris Rock, and Jerry Seinfeld. And they all just sat around talking about comedy uh, for like an hour and a bit. Now, let's, this is like over 10 years ago. So let's go back to a time where Louis C.K. was not identified. Now we identify him as a complete creep, loser, idiot. But back then, him, Chris Rock, and Jerry Seinfeld were the biggest comedians in the world. Uh, maybe you could add Chappelle in there as well, but he wasn't part of this uh, thing. Then I thought to myself, what's Ricky Gervais doing here? This you group? and every single person who watched that. Look, this is a North American uh, phenomenon. I think most of us in North America were like, has Ricky Gervais ever even performed in front of a live audience? Right? We had no idea he was a stand-up comedian. That's just not who he was to us. He was the guy from the office. He was, and as much as you love him, if you're a North American, you're like, he's sitting with giants. He's sitting with Seinfeld, Chris Rock, and Louis C.K. Like Louis C.K. is just barely able to sit with Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld. But who is this? Add on. In Punjabi, there's a word, techi. Techi means suitcase. And sometimes if somebody's like your plus one, they go, so he, he brought a techi. Like, this was a major tetchy situation for m many of us, but Ricky Gervais certainly didn't seem to think so, and he, he was, you know, treated as a peer, and I think we were like, well, that's kind. They made him feel as though he was a peer, but I know, you know, given the work he's done, like, yes, yeah, Seinfeld ran for as long as it did, but Ricky Gervais doesn't do that. Ricky Gervais does, with the exception of Afterlife, two seasons, and The Office is one of the greatest shows to ever occupy TV space. Extras is fantastic, right? The, the life's too short. He's, he's, his body of work is, is terrific on television. And then he's also a well-known stand-up in England. Who knew? We well, certainly didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that. Maybe he was. Who knows? But this is the way I... Who knows? I, you can look that up on the internet. I, I could. I'm not going to. Because I want to give my own psychoanalysis of this. I see. I think at this point now, we're talking 2011... I think Ricky Gervais thinks he's on the level of these guys. I really do. And again, I do love Ricky Gervais. And and I think this kind of emboldened him to like, well, I'm, I can do this and I'm going to do these stand-up specials. And that's kind of what he did for Netflix. And of course, he has this relationship with HBO. Uh, like I said, this talking funny special with these four comedians was on HBO. He also did this podcast, this Ricky Gervais podcast, and 
I don't know if you guys have seen this. It, it was a podcast that was there was aired in the UK, one of the top podcasts in the world at the time. That we're talking about the late two thousands, and then and HBO decided to make TV episodes of these podcasts, and they would just animate the conversations that were going on, and then they showed little clips of, of what they were describing in animation. So it's Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant and their friend Carl Pilkington, and they basically just make fun of Carl in every episode. That's essentially what happens. Uh, he's quite a funny, dry guy, Carl, but definitely an easy person to make fun of. And I watched like several of these kind of animated versions of this on HBO with my wife. They are really funny, laugh out loud funny. So I, I do think he's genuinely funny. Did you watch the clip I sent you, Ollie? I've actually heard the podcast a number of episodes and eventually I sort of phased out of it because of how much fun they made of Carl Pilkington. It was really like two guys ganging up on a guy who is, I mean, borderline has some sort of special needs of some kind. And it just felt like I'm watching two schoolyard bullies go off on this sort of defenseless animal or something. I mean, like a little puppy. And then you learn at the same time, Ricky Gervais loves animals and the poor animals and defenseless animals. I'm like, put a little bit of that love into human beings. It wouldn't be the worst thing. So I, I went through a phase where I was less impressed with Ricky Gervais because of that podcast. I found it quite mean, mean-spirited. This is a perfect segue. That's what I do, bro. That's what I do. Yeah, I exactly. You're awesome. So he ended up making these comedy specials, like I said, mainly on Netflix. Some of them are focused on animals at the beginning. Not that funny. And I think he thinks that... Animals need to be protected, but everyone else is fair game. Humans in general are fair game, and it's not punching down. It's because he didn't really make fun of animals in his special. He just kind of laughs at the foibles of the animal kingdom, but he's not like, you know. But I think he thinks people are fair game. So my impression of his comedy specials is some of them are really funny. Some of them are not. Last couple before the current one, Armageddon, I didn't think were that good. But then he has this new one, Armageddon, that came out. So I want to get all these thoughts in a second. But just so people know, there is some controversy about this because he makes some jokes in this about Make-A-Wish children. Now, obviously, children, I mean, I see uh, as part of these Make-A-Wish uh, programs all the time because these are children who have a life-limiting disease like cancer. Some of my patients were just telling me they're about to go on a trip for a Make-A-Wish in the next couple of weeks. And so it's all very exciting for these kids. And also, of course, sad because they have a life-limiting condition, often cancer. So he makes fun of them. He makes fun of, he uses the R word that we use for special needs, mentally challenged people. So, and people took offense to this and they want to cancel it even before it came out, even before people had watched it. So Ali, curious what yeah. you think about all this special, this controversy, etc. It's It's very rich, fertile ground here between you and I, as someone who's a comedy fan like you are, but someone who works with children who have all kinds of various diseases and conditions, and, and myself, who I would like to believe am a decent human being, but also a comedian and someone who loves and respects the art of comedy. It's like, we have got an interesting little duo to talk about this here. I did not like... Ricky, I haven't watched a bunch. I watched Humanity a few years ago. That is a 2018 special, average. I watched Animals, his first stand-up special ever. I didn't care for it. And I'm not sure what I've seen, but I didn't watch Supernature, which is 2022. So I watched 2023. I watched this special with the 
thought in the back of my mind that I don't particularly care for Ricky Gervais stand up. I remember his sort of bullying or what I perceived as bullying of Carl Pilkington. I have a sort of a negative attitude going in. I'm watching it really just for this podcast. And despite it all, I was like, this is pretty good comedy. Now you have to know and understand two things. Number one, Ricky Gervais and number two, satire, right? This is the challenge. Like if you just come out of the blue and say, oh, I think I like comedy. Let me try this special. You could be horrified. The thing is we have no way of obliging anyone or compelling anyone to do any of that research before they watch comedy. So I also understand why people are angry at him. I understand, you know, my wife came in at one point and was like, is this supposed to be funny? That's not funny. I was like, okay, you can't really watch this with me right now. Right? <laughs> I understand Ricky Gervais' perspective. Through, yeah. You can't come in for two minutes and leave. Yeah, and yeah, you exactly, know, exactly. I understand Ricky Gervais' thing. His thing has always been, I am playing a role. I don't think those things. He goes, I never use the R word in public. I would never, right? That's not who I am. I'm playing a role on stage. It's a whole, the whole thing is, imagine if I was somebody who mm -hmm. said this, mm -hmm. imagine if, mm -hmm. and his idea is like, we all think weird thoughts. We all think thoughts we shouldn't. Like one of his things is like, you've been in the subway and you look at some guy and like, what would happen if I just pushed this bloke off the tracks? And you're like, oh my God, why did I think that? We all have weird thoughts and we don't act on them. The challenge, of course, is we get an earnest voice sometimes in this comedy. And then we go, oh, there's the real, there's Ricky. We're That's Ricky Gervais right there talking. And then he goes and says something horrific. And then you go, oh yeah, the character. You have to understand him a little bit. You have to understand, you know, sort of what comedy can be on stage. And you have to not be easily triggered by words. You have to understand the context with which he delivers his material. And when I say you have to, I don't mean you, the listener has to, I mean, one needs to, in order to appreciate this special. But as I said, we can't force anybody to do that. So that's where we're at. That's the world we live in. But I thought this was, there were moments of actual brilliance in this special. And I, I haven't said that about a special in a while. Some of the jokes are okay, but they were some like really brilliant bits. I will not ruin them for people. I will not you know, because again, I'm going to be taking them out of context, but some really great stuff. So I was, I was impressed and I, I see why it won. You know, the idea, and we've kind of touched on this in the past, is there any jokes that are off limits or whatever? And to me, it just depends if they're funny or not. And, you know, he does make trans jokes. He makes pedophilia jokes. Like there's, there's yeah. a lot of stuff that, that you might find offensive. He mentions the word rape several times. And I know people who are like, rape is never funny. It's never funny. There's nothing you can do about rape that's funny. And Ricky Gervais would disagree with that. He would take actually your perspective that if you can find a way to make something funny, then you do it. So, yeah. Joan Rivers, who we've talked about before, I, I love Joan Rivers. She had a joke where she's like, you know, her husband committed suicide. She's like, yeah, my husband committed suicide. It's really my fault. I took the bag off my head when we were making love. So, I mean, I'm paraphrasing her joke and she can tell much funnier, but you could say, oh, suicide is never funny. Why are you making fun of suicide? But she did, and it was her. I mean, she experienced the loss. So I don't know. Is that okay? And, and the other stuff, because Ricky Gervais has not experienced these other things, as far as we know. I don't know. As long as it's funny. 
And I thought he achieved his point, which is his whole point was what Ali said. He's trying to prove that he's playing a character. These aren't real words. You know, it, we're not canceling Archie Bunker, as we talked about in our previous episode, for making all his racist comments. We're not canceling because it's a character Carol O'Connor plays. And that's what I mean, this is, is a very dated reference you're making, Asif. But in truth, people would cancel the network that airs the show. Right. They would certainly exactly. try. They would exactly. absolutely do that. So you're exactly. saying we're not, but we, quote unquote, would very much cancel the writer, producer, and television outlet, you know, television broadcaster that allowed that and those words to be there. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are triggered easily. We don't have the coping mechanisms to think and dive into something and be like, why is this being said? What is the context of this? We hear things quickly and that's it. We're like, I can't believe that. And I, I say that as a guy who hosts a comedy radio show. We get almost no complaints on a Saturday airing of six of a 6.30 p.m. radio show. And we get complaints on the 12.30 p.m. airing of the radio show. Why? Because people are not sitting listening to a comedy show at 12.30. They're doing other things. They're busy. And all of a sudden they say, what? Did somebody just say Hitler in a joke? And then the complaint comes. And it's like, no, there was a Jewish comedian mocking Hitler. He wasn't like sort of normalizing Hitler's behavior, right? So you, you just can't explain these things to people. And many people are like, I don't want to know. I just know that I heard a word that I don't like, and I don't want to hear that comedy, which is totally fine. Ricky Gervais himself talks about this special about like, so don't watch my comedy. You don't have right. to. Exactly. You have a choice. And I do think just to wrap this up, I think there's a difference. I have seen some comedians go on rants about things and they're really just ranting and there's no jokes here. And I think I must have been, have not watched Dave Chappelle's most recent special, but his previous one, you know, there's a lot of issues with his making jokes about trans persons and the trans population being upset at this. And I must admit for his last special, I was like, I don't see where the jokes are here, Dave. I see jokes on the other subjects, but I didn't really see the funny. I just thought you're just kind of just ranting and you haven't cleared an agenda. You're upset that these people are upset with you. And that's just my personal opinion. Again, I'll watch the new one. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, see if the jokes are funny. But I don't know. I think there is a difference between those two things. And I think Ricky Gervais actually did a pretty good job. Not A plus 100%, but I got the point of what he was trying to do. And I think there are some genuinely funny things in the special, but not for everyone. All right, Asif, speaking about fodder, rich subject, rich, rich territory. I mean, I want to say, I don't think I know anyone who hasn't been touched by depression in some way or the other, either directly or indirectly. It is, you know, I was having this kind of a long time. It's, it's kind of weird that we've done over a hundred episodes and are only touching on depression now because it is so pervasive. And I wanted to talk about it also. You know, I am very careful. There have been periods of my life where I've been bummed out, like quite bummed out, really like in debt, living with my parents in the basement, not able to sort of pay basic bills and drinking too much. And I was always very, very careful to make sure that I never said, I think I'm depressed because I think it's 
very real. And, and I wanted to get your take on how loosely the term gets thrown around. And maybe that's a good thing for the medical industry. They're like, great, keep on throwing it around. We can diagnose it, you know, loosely and get more people on the drugs. Who knows? You know my feelings about these things. But I wanted to talk about how common it was. I wanted to also talk about, we'll get to this eventually, obviously, but there's an idea of, I knew somebody who, when somebody would come to her, she was a, a doctor, when somebody would come to her and say, I'm depressed, she would say, get a dog. And they would be like, no, you idiot. I told you I was, these are her words, you idiot. I said I was depressed. I didn't say I need a dog. Like, why would I, I'm just going to have a depressed dog. And her perspective was, here's the thing. I don't want to jump to medicine right away. You get a dog. What happens? Now you have another living, breathing being with you that you are responsible for. What do you have to do? You have to feed them. You have to walk them. When you're walking them, what are you doing? You're getting fresh air. You're going out. This guy, so I always thought that that was an interesting thing. And she said, if that still doesn't bring you out of your funk, we'll talk about medicine. She never said those words to them because then people would be like, all right, fine. I know I want the medicine, so I'll just get some stupid dog. <laughs> in the meantime, you're, you're you know, creating a situation where you're going to have a mistreated dog. But I think I've heard things like that as well. People sort of recommending things like, oh, exercise. You just need exercise. You just need this. So I wanted to talk about like, is it appropriate to talk about stuff like that? Or is it like clinically depressed people basically need medication and that's the only way? Let's talk about it. I think, you know, trying to do a one size fits all for everybody is probably not the best thing. So in other words, recommending a dog or exercise for every single person who comes in complaining of depression is probably not appropriate. Like, what if that patient, and we talk a bit about suicide, you know, and its relation with depression, but, you know, if they're suicidal, is that what you're going to do? Like, so I think it's, that's a bit simplistic. Maybe for an individual person, that might be appropriate, but maybe not, right? If they have so much debt that they can't survive, oh, why don't you buy a dog that costs thousands of dollars a year? Okay, but that now I'm like <laughs> editorializing. <laughs> Somebody it. doesn't like dogs that much. So, if you guys can hear my dog barking in the background later on. So let's backtrack a bit. I'm also going to tell you what we're not going to talk about. I do think we should do a separate episode on suicide because it's a very important topic and we want to make sure we're being sensitive to that topic. Same thing with postpartum depression and seasonal affective disorder. These are kind of subtypes of depression that I, yeah. I think are best saved to do a full episode on. So we're just going to talk about depression in general. Great. Okay. So general depression, I mean, is that, I, mean, I don't know if that's the term for it. Well, but. yeah, the diagnosis we're going to talk about is major depressive disorder. But if you look at all types of depression, so if you look at a survey by the CDC in 2019, 11.5% of people in America experience mild symptoms of depression in the two weeks preceding the survey. So we're talking about over 10%. 4.2% experience moderate symptoms and 2.8% severe symptoms. So we can see how prevalent it is just in that small sample, right? Of looking at a specific time period in 2019. It's got the vibe of blood pressure in that regard, yeah. right? People's blood pressure going up before their blood pressure is going to be taken. I would venture to say, and again, my colleagues who are in family medicine can tell me, I would venture to say depression and 
anxiety are the two most common things people see in a family practice. So again, people like you and me are sometimes hesitant to label their feelings as depression, but it's so common. It probably is, right? Like, you know, you probably don't have some rare disorder. Like, we'll talk about blood tests, but we often don't need to do any blood tests. But sometimes a thyroid disorder could mimic some symptoms of depression. But more likely, you just have depression, right? And even in, and again, I'm not immune to it either, Ali. Like, when I dislocated my shoulder a couple of years ago, it's a minor thing that I'm going to get better from. But I was probably depressed, like in hindsight during that time, you know, you can't do everything you, you were doing before. So I think the challenge for me sort of using it loosely and say, you know, I appreciate you saying I was probably depressed. I don't think, you know, you gave yourself an official diagnosis and the fact that you didn't need to go in and you right, know, right. have a it's doctor look at you. It's in hindsight you see this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That tells me a lot about depression also. But I also was very close to somebody who would have depressive, what would you like call episodes? it? Episodes? Like, but an episode suggests it's like a week or a weekend. I'm saying extended yeah, 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 yeah. times in her life. And, and her words, I'll never forget, were the dark clouds are coming. The dark clouds are coming. And, I, you know, I'm like, I'm like a seven on 10 happy guy when I wake up in the morning. I'm like, no, they're not. Look, it's a sunny day. Like not understanding anything about what. And let me tell you. Nothing could have been more accurate than that. The dark clouds are coming for her because as soon as, and she could see them coming, she knew it was coming. And as soon as they like metaphorically passed over her head, that's the best way to describe her. She was just sort of enshrouded in darkness and it was, there was nothing I could do. There was no song or dance that I could pull out certainly that could help her. And, you know, that was a case where I think medication was the only real solution, man. I, but I always feel very bad about that. Like the dark clouds are coming. And it also reminded me of how helpless some people are in these situations. Well, just getting back to the numbers, it's funny when you think about age, the highest percentage of symptoms. So again, they're looking at that questionnaire the CDC did where they're looking the past two weeks. And if they say, what's the number of people who have had any symptoms of depression? The highest was in ages 18 to 29. 21% of patients say in the past two weeks they had any symptoms of depression, then followed by ages 45 to 64, and then older people. The age group with the least was 30 to 44 years of age for some reason. And of course, one thing is women are more likely than men to have depressive symptoms. So now we should talk about the causes. In terms of what causes it, we don't know. As you, no, as you know, yeah. Oh, the pause, the little pause. I was like, he's got something. He's got something that is not, we don't know. And then there you did. You sprung the old, we don't know on us. All right. What do you know? Now we do know that the neurotransmitter serotonin is very involved in depression. And we know this for a lot of reasons, but of course, one of them is because we use what are called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which increase your levels of serotonin, and that is one of the treatments for depression. We also know that, um, of course, I'm simplifying things because like I said, we don't know. There's lots of studies going on trying to find the root causes of depression, but we know genetic factors play an important role as well. If you look at twin studies, the twin concordance rate, so if one twin has depression, what's the identical twins? What's the chance the other one will have it? 40 to 50%, okay? And first-degree relatives of depressed individuals are three times as likely to develop depression as the general population. 
But of course, it can occur in people who don't have a family history as well. And you could argue, well, maybe they're depressed because they have to live with a parent who has depression, right? Like, who knows what's genetic, what's environment, right? But that is a reasonable question. Okay. So genetics, I mean, can you fight against that? Can you do certain things that, I mean, that, that's, that's a huge number, but is that sort of, you know? fatalistic type of thing? No, like if no it's for sure. It's not necessarily going to be everybody. It just means you have an increased risk. You have to be more aware. What about actual events, like stressful events or stressors? Like you were talking about your shoulder. Mm -hmm. How is that measured? Are there things that people, you know, somebody losing somebody in life? Yeah, you lost yeah exactly. Your use of one arm. Yeah. So they can cause a major depressive disorder to arise. So for example, the loss of a pair before age 10, increases the risk of a later depression. And we know that medical illnesses can also cause this. And of course, you may have, a, say, a medical illness which can disrupt your sleep, and that affects your biorhythms and can lead to depression. And, you know, later in life, there's other things too. Your spouse passes away, then there's loneliness, there's the bereavement, there's caregiver burden, you know, if your spouse has dementia. So all these things can kind of add up and contribute to it. It doesn't mean if you have these that they're going to. And, of course, it's normal to have grief reactions to these stressful life events. That's normal behavior. No one's saying that you should not feel anything. It's if you develop some of these signs and symptoms we're going to talk about that can perhaps be more indicative that you have a major depressive disorder. Okay. So let's talk about the symptoms. What do you see in yourself where you might be like, I think I might be depressed? Or what do you see in others where you're like, hey, I think this person might be depressed and we have to look out for them? So some people might look just completely fine, right? Other people with depression, you may see their hygiene and their grooming, you know, these take care of themselves. Now they're all like disheveled. What's happening here? Or weight change, right? But it could go either way. Could be weight gain, could be weight loss. Some patients, they have what's called psychomotor retardation. And again, that's just the term we use. It has nothing to do with the R word we, that Ricky Gervais was using in his stand-up special. This just means like kind of just slowing of your cognition and your thinking and just kind of, you know, you ask someone a question, those of us who've been around someone who's depressed, you ask them a question and then they respond like several seconds later. I'm trying to take a long time. Hey, that was good acting. Did you prepare oh, for you. that? Thank you. Thank you. And then a loss of reactivity, like what we call a flat affect, like, you know, just no emotion on their face or sometimes the opposite. It's restlessness, agitation, irritability, right? You might notice that. But then if we want to say, okay, this person has a major depressive disorder. These are the criteria. You need at least five of the following symptoms to have been present during the same two-week period, okay? So one is depressed mood. So how do you ask that? You say, you need to feel down, do you feel low, okay? For children and adolescents, though, that could be an irritable mood because they often present as irritability. Jeez, with the adolescents, I mean... Yeah, exactly. What do you, I know, I it know. could be five years of irritability and exactly. never once be depression. So that's a weird one. Diminished or loss of pleasure in almost all activities. We call that anhedonia. Not 
enjoying things that you usually find enjoyable. So if, you know, mm. if they just I didn't use, know there was a term for that. Yeah, let's just I use me know. as an example. So Ali and I are chatting. He's like, hey, what, what TV shows? No, I don't really like watching TV anymore. Oh, like, I'd call oh, the hospital immediately. An ambulance is coming to your house directly if you stop watching yeah. TV. Yeah, Ali's like, have you wasted any time playing video games these days or going out to dinner? I'm like, no, I don't really like doing those things, right? It would be a red idea. flag for Ali for me that something's going on, right? Significant weight change or appetite disturbance, as we talked about, sleep disturbance, insomnia, or hypersomnia. So not sleeping or sleeping all day in quotation marks. And, and again, I see this all the time in patients and people are thinking, oh, it could be a neurologic cause. Maybe we have narcolepsy. No, it's more likely depression. Insomnia is almost always a anxiety or depression episode. Let's make a note. Where's our intern, Joe? Make a note of, we got to do an episode on insomnia. Again, the psychomotor retardation we talked about, fatigue or energy loss, just feeling tired all the time. Again, we get lots of patients referred to neurologists. Oh, I'm weak all the time. I'm fatigued all the time. You're not actually weak. When I, we test your strength, your muscles and your nerves, everything's intact. But you're feeling this fatigue all the time, feeling worthless, diminished ability to think or concentrate, indecisiveness. In adults, older people, like the elderly, sometimes we think they have dementia because they don't can't concentrate, they can't remember things. In order for me to remember what you're telling me, Ali, I need to be concentrating and paying attention to what's going on. But if I have these feelings of worthlessness and low mood or whatever, I'm not even paying attention to what Ali's saying. And then it will seem like, oh, you have no memory. We had a whole conversation about Ricky Gervais. You don't even remember recording the podcast. But that's because I'm not paying attention and incorporating that into my memories. And then recurrent thoughts of death, suicidal ideation. And of course, when we talk about suicide with someone, we need as a physician to know or a psychologist or counselor, do you have a plan or not? If you have a plan for suicide, you have to go to the emergency room immediately, right? If you just have general low thoughts, okay, well then we can kind of do that. So if you have at least five of those symptoms during the same two-week period, that's a major depressive disorder. And there's milder kind of forms of depression if you only have a few of these. But you should, one should be able to kind of look at these themselves and think to themselves, okay, yeah, I do have some of these I don't. Or as a physician, when you're assessing somebody, you know, how many of these do they have? Where would they fall into this category? In general, you know, some people might think, oh, it might be hard. Like, how does your physician get to it? But there's lots of easy questions to ask. This is a two-pronged question that physicians get asked very quickly in a visit to find out if someone has depression. Number one, during the past month, have you been bothered by feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? I often ask that, you know, if you've been feeling down or, or low. And during the past month, have you been bothered by little interest or pleasure in doing things? So anhedonia. And I often ask that. Those two questions can get to a lot of the things and then you can explore further. And if they say no, Things are going good. Okay. Well, th they say yes to one because the first one yeah. describes at certain points in the last four years, let's say a large part of society right. might, might answer yes to, you because if you're just taking a month as a period, yeah, yeah, this month was. This well, sucked. yeah, exactly. So I think a lot of people would argue that a lot of the world was probably depressed from 2020 to 2022. And I think now in hindsight, we can see that. And, you know, all I have to do is tell you the word lockdown and see how, you, not even how you cognitively react to it. How do you physically react to it? And the feeling of nausea should be normal for people, right? If I bring I actually, that up. 
I don't you know, know what, what it mean? says about me. It was, the, it was the best time of my life. Okay. Anyway, that's... That, but you know why? <laughs> because I was eating better. I was in control of more things. I was exercising a ton, getting a lot of sun and fresh air. All those things that I never made time for, spending time with my children. I was doing things that I was only like dreamt about. Like, ah, I don't have time for this. And now all of a sudden I have time to do these things. I don't know. I had a, a, a good, uh, of course, money is nice. But as a person who's not motivated by money, I was just like, this is kind of good. This is pretty awesome. But only for a while. Eventually it was like, this is horrifying. Okay. Okay. On a completely unrelated note, we had talked about suicide before. Yes. And depression plays a role in more than one half of all suicide attempts. And the lifetime risk of suicide among patients with an untreated depressive disorder, 20%. That's quite high and quite serious. So, so I was going to ask you about like, what if depression goes untreated? What right, can, right. Can it go away as well? It can, right? It Obviously, can. you said one it, in five can lead to the worst case scenario, yeah. but four in five. That's right. And so I think it's important to realize that, of course, if you, especially if you have mild depression, it may, it may go away. But again, a major depressive disorder... The sad part is 70 to 80% of people with appropriate treatment can achieve a significant reduction in symptoms. And two-thirds of people with depression don't realize they have a treatable illness and seek professional help. So it is treatable, and most people don't realize that they have it and that it is treatable. Now, getting back to your question before, actually the number one therapy for major depressive disorder is getting a dog. Come on! I'm being extremely sarcastic. So, no, it's not, <laughs> of course. I mean, we do practice evidence-based medicine. Again, what a great performance. I don't know if all the, the movies you've been watching have had an impact, but really, like, you, you were deep in character. Thank you. Very this good. is going well. Yeah, I'm pretty funny. So, no. The studies show that the quickest response and most sustained response, okay, I think those are probably two key things for people is the combination of medication and psychotherapy. So doing, it doesn't mean one or the other. Could you just get by with doing one? Yes. If you're the type of person who doesn't engage with uh, psychotherapy, then maybe just medicine for you. Or if you like- Okay, I don't this really is like, a very- Hold on. Dude, this is such talking. a medical answer, no, man. Okay. Listen, dude, you didn't let me finish. <laughs> or if you're not into medicine, then just psychotherapy. But psychotherapy, you can't go for one session and assume you're going to be better. If you start a medication- most of them work within like six to eight weeks or so. And so it just depends. But if you, again, if you're like actively suicidal, then maybe you don't have several months to see a therapist and, you know, engage in that manner. But if not, then psychotherapy. would. Well, here's sense. the thing that I'm thinking. So the most recent connection that I have had to depression, comedian Gary Gullman, very open about his depression, had very serious suicide ideation and intention was in uh, awful periods. And his thing has been, as he talks about his depression, he needs this balance of three things, medication, meditation, and exercise. And he says, if any one of those three dips, the other two cannot make up for the loss in one. And it's this balance. He said, so the pandemic was when his gym closed, it was like a, a huge panic because one of the things, so I just, I'm deeply saddened that exercise, I know we're joking about the dog, but exercise and, and meditation aren't part of what the medical community looks at. Again, you have to 
take a look at what there's scientific evidence for, right? I'm not saying for individual people those things aren't good. In fact, they are good. We know that those things are good. But also, we're talking about people with a major depressive disorder. You notice that the comedian didn't say, I just do exercise and meditation. And no. Right? So, you know, he's aware enough and has ex probably experienced enough to know what's important. And he needs to have he's a balance for like things. shock therapy. It, and I mean, this is this person has you're, okay. you're, you're ruining later on. So, <laughs> oh no. When it comes to medicine that there is evidence for, so we use SSRIs the most. This is like a medication like Prozac. There's also something called SNRIs, which are involved in norepinephrine. And then there's other things like tricyclic antidepressants. And so you can speak with your doctor about what may be kind of right for you. There are obviously side effects potential for all of these. So you need to talk about those things. One thing that I know Ollie would be interested in is St. John's wort, W-O-R-T, not W-O-R-T. It's a herb. It's an herbal remedy available over the counter. It's considered first-line antidepressant treatment in many European countries. But Canada and the U.S. poo-poo on it? No, it's gained some popularity. And so it has not been shown to be effective in major depressive episodes. It can't be recommended as first-line treatment in moderate depression. But if you have mild depression... Mm -hmm. Maybe this is something to consider, and you don't have to necessarily go to uh, prescription medicine. Now, it probably actually, people think it acts as an SSRI, acts as a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. A lot of the drugs we see are actually based on compounds we find in nature and then refined by a pharmaceutical company. So, you know, that is certainly possible. You could try that for a few months. If it didn't work, then you might want to look into something else. When you're taking a medicine, again, usually you want to try for at least six to eight weeks. And then if it works, at least staying on for four or nine months. Or some people may want to be on it for longer. Just to wrap up, Ali, let's talk about electroconvulsive therapy because this is something that people think, oh, we're torturing these people in a psychiatric hospital. But electroconvulsive therapy is a highly effective evidence-based treatment for depression. And it definitely works. You're not awake when you get it done, okay? Just so people know, you put to sleep with an anesthesia. So obviously there's a risk of anesthesia. We is do, it the metal helmet on top of the head and then the zaps to the brain? Is it that? Not quite, but sort of. Okay. And, you know, you have to give people a brief anesthesia. You have to give the neuromuscular paralysis. And there are risks associated with that. And afterwards, you can be confused. Sometimes you have short-term memory difficulties. But otherwise, it's very well tolerated. So we would use it in someone who needs a very rapid antidepressant response. You do not have time to wait several weeks or months. Very for rapid means you don't have a meeting tomorrow. You are going to kill yourself, basically. Yeah, high risk of suicide, risk and, and of you okay. don't think that they're safe. and Or you've tried drugs, they haven't worked, like the community you're talking about. Some patients prefer that. They're like, I don't want to take a medicine, whatever, I need this now. They prefer that. Or there's a high risk of reactions to medications or something like that where this is not a medicine, but it definitely works. It's not some sort of, like I say, experimental torture type thing, but it's portrayed like that, but it's not. And like I said, you're not awake for it, so. How does it work? Do you know how it works? It's a good question. Again, a bit unclear, but the way that I often simplify it if I have to explain it to people, which I often don't because I never prescribe this, is it kind of resets your circuits in your brain, essentially. The old reset button. It's 
So that's our episode for today. Let us know what you guys thought. We will have more episodes on various topics related to depression. As I mentioned, suicide, postpartum, seasonal affective disorder. These will all come later. Maybe we'll even look up dog therapy for insomnia and perhaps dog therapy for depression. There's probably... Man, don't even open that can of worms. I bet you there's psychologists who sit with dogs and try to get them to be less depressed. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. It's like the opposite. <laughs> the dog's the depressed one. Yeah. Dog depressed hanging out with a depressed human, actually. Let us know what you guys thought about Ricky Gervais' stand-up special. Very curious to know what you guys thought. Uh, did you guys think it was funny? Did you guys think it wasn't? Again, very curious about that. DrVComedian at gmail.com. DrVComedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're everywhere. Ali, anything to plug? Canada Reads, look it up. It's March 4th to the 7th. There's five books that are being championed, all great books. And if you're looking for stuff to read, this is a debate that I host every March or have for the last eight years. And yeah, if you're a reader, if you're looking for literature choices, the short list of books, even the long list are great reading materials. I'd recommend that. I'm going to be in Cincinnati as well in February doing a storytelling show called The Moth. Many people, if you listen to NPR, you might know about The Moth Storytelling Hour. So I'm going to be on that in Cincinnati. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interests and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.